38, ants may have to be prescribed. V.04P.0636 chronic bronchitis may arise as the result of repeated attacks of the acute form, or it may exist altogether independently. It occurs more frequently among persons advanced in life than among the young, although no age is exempt from it. The usual history of this form of bronchitis is that of a cough recurring during the colder seasons of the year, and in its earlier stages, departing entirely in summer, so that it is frequently called winter cough. In many persons subject to it, however, attacks are apt to be excited at any time by very slight causes, such as changes in the weather, and in advanced cases of the disease the cough is seldom altogether absent. The symptoms and auscultatory signs of chronic bronchitis are on the whole similar to those pertaining to the acute form, except that the febrile disturbance and pain are much less marked. The cough is usually more troublesome in the morning than during the day. There is usually free and copious expectoration and occasionally this is so abundant as to constitute what is termed bronchorrhea. Chronic bronchitis leads to alterations of structure in the affected bronchial tubes, their mucous membrane becoming thickened or even ulcerated, while occasionally permanent dilatation of the bronchi takes place, often accompanied with profuse fetid expectoration. In long-standing cases of chronic bronchitis the nutrition of the lungs becomes impaired, and dilatation of the air tubes emphysema and other complications result giving rise to more or less constant breathlessness. Chronic bronchitis may arise secondarily to some other ailment. This is especially the case in Bright's disease of the kidneys and in heart disease, of both of which maladies it often proves a serious complication. Also in gout and syphilis, the influence of occupation is seen in the frequency in which persons following certain employments suffer from chronic bronchitis. Hurt has shown that the inhalation of vegetable dust is very liable to produce bronchitis through the irritation produced by the dust particles and the growth of organisms carried in with the dust. Consequently, millers and grain shovelers are especially liable to it, while next in order come weavers and workers in cotton factories. The treatment to be adopted in chronic bronchitis depends upon the severity of the case, the age of the patient and the presence or absence of complications. Attention to the general health is a matter of prime importance in all cases of the disease, more particularly among persons whose avocations entail exposure, and tonics with cob liver oil will be found highly advantageous. The use of a respirator in very cold or damp weather is a valuable means of protection. In those aggravated forms of chronic bronchitis, where the slightest exposure to cold air brings on fresh attacks, it may become necessary, where circumstances permit to enjoin confinement to a warm room or removal to a more genial climate during the winter months. B-R-O-N-C-H-O-D-O-M-E-G-R Greek, bronchos, windpipe, and Greek, temname, to cut. A medical term used to describe a surgical incision into the throat, now largely superseded by the terms laryngotomy, thyrotomy and tracheotomy, which indicate more accurately the place of incision, bronco. Usually incorrectly spelled P-R-O-N-C-H-O Spanish word meaning rough, rude, and unbroken or untamed horse, especially in the United States. A Mustang, the word entered America by way of Mexico. Bronsted, Peter O.L.U.F. 1780-1842, Danish archaeologist and traveler, was born at Fruering in Jutland on the 17th of November 1780. After studying at the University of Copenhagen he visited Paris in 1806 with his friend Georg Chaos. After remaining there two years, they went together to Italy. Both were zealously attached to the study of antiquities, and congeniality of tastes and pursuits induced them, in 1810, to join an expedition to Greece. 
where they excavated the temples of Zeus in Aegina and of Apollo at Bossi in Arcadia. After three years of active researches in Greece, Broenstead returned to Copenhagen, where, as a reward for his labors, he was appointed professor of Greek in the university. He then began to arrange and prepare for publication the vast materials he had collected during his travels, but finding that Copenhagen did not afford him the desired facilities, he exchanged his professorship for the office of Danish envoy at the papal court in 1818, and took up his abode at Rome. In 1820 and 1821 he visited Sicily and the Ionian Isles to collect additional materials for his great work. In 1826 he went to London chiefly with a view of studying the Elgin marbles and other remains of antiquity in the British Museum, and became acquainted with the principal archaeologists of England. From 1828-1832 he resided in Paris, to superintend the publication of his travels, and then returned to Copenhagen on being appointed director of the Museum of Antiquities and the collection of coins and medals. In 1842 he became rector of the university, but a fall from his horse caused his death on the 26th of June. His principal work was the travels and archaeological researches in Greece and German and French, 1826-1830, of which only two volumes were published, dealing with the island of Ceos and the metopes of the Parthenon, Brongianiardi, Adolphe Theodore 1801-1876, French botanist, son of the geologist Alexander Brongniard, was born in Paris on the 14th of January 1801. He soon showed an inclination towards the study of natural science, devoting himself at first more particularly to geology, and later to botany, thus equipping himself for what was to be the main occupation of his life the investigation of fossil plants. In 1826 he graduated as doctor of medicine with a dissertation on the Ramnaceae, but the career which he adopted was botanical, not medical. In 1831 he became assistant to Aurel Desfontaines at the Musée d'Histoire Naturelle and two years later succeeded him as professor, a position which he continued to hold until his death in Paris on the 18th of February 1876. Brongniart was an indefatigable investigator and a prolific writer, so that he left behind him, as the fruit of his labors, a large number of books and memoirs. As early as 1822 he published a paper on the classification and distribution of fossil plants mem, muse, hist, nat, vi. This was followed by several papers chiefly bearing upon the relation between extinct and existing forms a line of research which culminated in the publication of the Historia des Vigita Fossils, which has earned for him the title of Father of Polyadbotany. This great work was heralded by a small but most important prodrome contributed to the Grand Dictionnaire Nat. 1828, Tilde, which brought order into chaos by a classification in which the fossil plants were arranged with remarkably correct insight, along with their nearest living alive, and which forms the basis of all subsequent progress in this direction, it is of especial botanical interest, because, in accordance with Robert Brown's discoveries, the Psychodiae and Conifery were placed in the new group Fenero Games Gymnosperms, in this book attention was also directed to the succession of forms in the various geological periods with the important result stated in modern terms that in the Paleozoic period the Pteridophyta are found to predominate, in the Mesozoic, the Gymnosperms, in the Kynozoic, the Angiosperms, a result subsequently more fully stated in his Tableau des Chandres de Vigita Fossils, d'Orbigny, Dict. University Tist, Nat. 1849, but the great historian itself was not destined to be more than a colossal fragment, 
The publication of successive parts proceeded regularly from 1828 to 1837, when the first volume was completed, but after that only three parts of the second volume appeared. Brongniert, no doubt, was overwhelmed with the continually increasing magnitude of the task that he had undertaken. Apart from his more comprehensive works, his most important paleontological contributions are perhaps his observations on the structure of Sigillaria Arch, Muse, Hist, Map, I 1839 and his research is almost the last he undertook on fossil seeds, of which a full account was published posthumously in 1880. His activity was by no means confined to paleobotany, but extended into all branches of botany, more particularly anatomy and phanerogamic taxonomy. Among his achievements in these directions the most notable is the memoir, Serlo Generation et Development de l'Embryon des Fenero Games, and, Psi, Map, Zi, 1827. This is remarkable in that it contains the V.04P.0637 first account of any value of the development of the pollen, as also a description of the structure of the pollen grain. The confirmation of GBMI size 1823 discovery of the pollen tube. The confirmation of our Brown's views as to the structure of the unimpregnated ovule with the introduction of the term sac embryonaire, and in that it shows how nearly Brongniert anticipated a mycelium subsequent 1846 discovery of the entrance of the pollen tube into the micropile, fertilizing the female cell which then develops into the embryo. Of his anatomical works, those of the greatest value are probably the Recherche sur la structure et les fonctions des fuels and side map sixty. 1830, and the Nouvelles Recherches sur le Pyder, and Side, Nat, by 1834, in which, among other important observations, the discovery of the cuticle is recorded, and, further, the Recherches sur l'organisation des tiges de psychotis, and Side, Nat, Side, 1829, giving the results of the first investigation of the anatomy of those plants. His systematic work is represented by a large number of papers and monographs, many of which relate to the flora of New Caledonia, and by his enumeration the genres de plants cultivés au Musée d'Histoire Naturelle de Paris 1843, which is an interesting landmark in the history of classification in that it forms the starting point of the system, modified successively by A. Braun, A. W. Eichler and A. Engler, which is now adopted in Germany. In addition to his scientific and professorial labors, Brongniert held various important official posts in connection with the Department of Education, and interested himself greatly in agricultural and horticultural matters. With J.B. Aduin and J.B.A. Dumas, his future brothers-in-law, he established the Annales de Sciences Naturelles in 1824, he also founded the Société Botanique de France in 1854, and was its first president. For accounts of his life and work see Bol, de la Sac, Jewel, de France. 1876, and La Nature, 1876, The Bulletin de la Sac, Bot, de France for 1876, Volumes XA, contains a list of his works and the orations pronounced at his funeral, S.H.B.B.R.O.N.G.N.I.R.D., Alexander 1770-1847, French mineralogist and geologist, son of the eminent architect who designed the Bourse and other public buildings of Paris was born in that city on the 5th of February 1770, at an early age he studied chemistry, under Lavoisier, and after passing through the École des Mines he took honors at the École de Médecine, subsequently he joined the army of the Pyrenees as Pharmacian, but having committed some slight political offense, 
he was thrown into prison and detained there for some time. Soon after his release he was appointed professor of natural history in the College de Squatre Nations. In 1800 he was made director of the Severus Porcelain Factory, a post which he retained to his death, and in which he achieved his greatest work. In his hands Severus became the leading porcelain factory in Europe, and the researches of an able band of assistants enabled him to allay the foundations of ceramic chemistry. In addition to his work at Severus, quite enough to engross the entire energy of any ordinary man. He continued his more purely scientific work. He succeeded Howdy as professor of mineralogy in the Museum of Natural History, but he did not confine himself to mineralogy, for it is to him that we owe the division of rectals into the four orders of Saurians, Batrachians, Colonians and Ophidians. Fossil as well as living animals engaged his attention and in his studies of the strata around Paris he was instrumental in establishing the tertiary formations. In 1816 he was elected to the Academy, and in the following year he visited the Alps of Switzerland and Italy, and afterwards Sweden and Norway. The result of his observations was published from time to time in the journal Des Mines and other scientific journals. Wide as was the range of his interests his most famous work was accomplished at Sevres and his most enduring monument is his classic Traité des Arts Ceramics 1844. He died in Paris on the 7th of October 1847. His other principal works are, Traité Elementaire de Mineralogie, Avec des Applications aux Arts 2 Volumes, Paris, 1807, Histoire Naturelle des Crustaces Fossils Paris, 1822, Classification et Caractères Mineralogiques des Rachis Homoines et Heterogenes Paris, 1827, the Tableau des Terrains qui composent le course du globe, OSI sur la structure de l'eau partie connue de l'eau terre Paris, 1829, and the Traité des Arts Ceramics 1844. Bronner was also the coadjutor of Cuvier in the admirable SI sur la géographie mineralogique des environs de Paris Paris, 1811, originally published in N. Muse, Hist, Map, Paris, Zy, 1808, BRN. Heinrich Georg 1800-1862, German geologist, was born on the 3rd of March 1800 at Jägelhausen near Heidelberg. Studying at the university at Heidelberg he took his doctor's degree in the faculty of medicine in 1821, and in the following year was appointed professor of natural history. He now devoted himself to paleontological studies, and to field work in various parts of Germany, Italy and France. From its commencement in 1830-1862 he assisted in editing the Jahrbuch Führer Mineralogy, and C. Continued as News Jahrbuch, his principal work, Lethia Geognostica 2 Volumes, Stuttgart, 1834-1838, Third Education with F. Romer, 3 Volumes, 1851-1856, has been regarded as one of the foundations of German stratigraphical geology, his Handbuch einer Geschichte der Nader of which the first part was issued in 1841, gave a general account of the physical history of the earth, while the second part dealt with the life history, species being regarded as direct acts of creation. The third part included his famous Index Paleontologicus, and was issued in three volumes, 1848-1849, with the assistance of H. von Meyer and H. R. Goypert. This record of fossils has proved of inestimable value to all paleontologists. An important work on recent and fossil zoology, Die Klassen und Ordnung und des Geierreichs, was commenced by Braun. He wrote the volumes dealing with Emerfosoa, Actinozoa, and Malacozoa, published 1859-1862, 
The work was continued by other naturalists. In 1861 Braun was awarded the Wollaston Medal by the Geological Society of London. He died at Heidelberg on the 5th of July 1862. The Rolf. Paul 1832-1891, Prussian general, was born at Danzig in 1832. He entered the Prussian Guards in 1849, and was appointed to the general staff in 1861 as a captain. After three years of staff service he returned to a regimental duty, but was soon reappointed to the staff, and lectured at the War Academy, becoming major in 1865 and lieutenant colonel in 1869. During the War of 1870 he was chief of a section on the great general staff, and conducted the preliminary negotiations for the surrender of the French at Sedan. After the war Bronzart was made a colonel and chief of staff of the Guard Army Corps, becoming Major General in 1876 and Lut. General with a division command in 1881. Two years later he became War Minister, and during his tenure of the post 1883-1889 many important reforms were carried out in the Prussian Army in particular the introduction of the magazine rifle. He was appointed in 1889 to command the I-Army Corps at Konigsberg. He died on 23 June 1891 at his estate near Brownsburg. Bronzart's military writings include two works of great importance in Ruhrblick auf die Taktischen Ruhrblicke Second Education Berlin, 1870, a pamphlet written in reply to Captain May's tactical retrospect of 1866 and Dear Dienst des General Stabe's First Education Berlin, 1876, Third Education Revised by General Meckel, 1893, New Education by the Author's Son, Major Bronzart von Schellendorf, Berlin, 1904, A Comprehensive Treatise on the Duties of the General Staff. The third edition of this work was soon after its publication translated into English and issued officially to the British Army as the duties of the General Staff. Major Bronzart's new edition of 1904 was reissued in English by the General Staff, under the same title, in 1905, the RLD, Charlotte 1816-1855, Emily 1818-1848, and an 1820-1849, English novelists, were three of the six children of Patrick Bronte, a clergyman of the Church of England who for the last 41 years of his life was perpetual incumbent of the parish of Howarth in the West Riding of Yorkshire. Patrick Bronte was born at Emsdale, Company Down, Ireland, on the 17th of March 1777. His parents were of the peasant class, their original name of Bronte apparently having been changed by their son on his entry at Street John's College, Cambridge, in 1802. In the intervening years he had been successively a weaver and schoolmaster in his native country. From Cambridge v.04 p.0638 he became a curate, first at Wethersfield in Essex, in 1806, then for a few months at Wellington, Salop, in 1809. At the end of 1809 he accepted a curacy at Dewsbury, Yorkshire, following up this by one at Harpsheed Clifton in the same county. At Harpsheed Patrick Bronte married in 1812 Maria Branwell, a Cornish woman, and their two children were born to him. Maria 1813-1825 and Elizabeth 1814-1825. Thence Patrick Bronte removed to Thornton, some three meters from Bradford, and here his wife gave birth to four children. Charlotte, Patrick Branwell 1817-1848, Emily Jane, and Anne, three of whom were to attain literary distinction. In April 1820, three months after the birth of Anne Bronte, her father accepted the living of Howarth. 
a village near Cayley in Yorkshire, which will always be associated with the romantic story of the Brontes. In September of the following year his wife died. Mariah Bronte lives for us in her daughter's biography only as the writer of certain letters to her dear saucy Pat, as she calls her a lover, and as the author of a recently published manuscript, an essay entitled The Advantages of Poverty in Religious Concerns, full of a sententiousness much affected at the time. Upon the death of Mrs. Bronte her husband invited his sister-in-law, Elizabeth Branwell, to leave Penzance and to take up her residence with his family at Howarth. Miss Branwell accepted the trust and would seem to have watched over her nephew and five nieces with conscientious care. The two eldest of those nieces were not long in following their mother. Mariah and Elizabeth, Charlotte and Emily, were all sent to the clergy daughter's school at Cohen Bridge in 1824, and Mariah and Elizabeth returned home in the following year to die. How far the bad food and drastic discipline were responsible cannot be accurately demonstrated. Charlotte gibbeted the school long years afterwards in Jane Eyre, under the thin disguise of Lowood, and the principal, the ref, William Carrams Wilson 1790-1859, has been universally accepted as the counterpart of Mr. Naomi Brockleyhurst in the same novel, but congenital disease more probably accounts for the tragedy from which happily Charlotte and Emily escaped, both returning in 1825 to a prolonged home life at Howarth. Here the four surviving children amused themselves in intervals of study under their aunt's guidance with precocious literary aspirations. The many tiny booklets upon which they labored in the succeeding years have been happily preserved. We find stories, verses and essays, all in the minutest handwriting, none giving any indication of the genius which in the case of two of the four children was to add to the indisputably permanent in literature. At 16 years of age in 1831 Charlotte Bronte became a pupil at the school of Miss Marguerite Wohler 1790-1885 at Rowhead, Dewsbury. She left in the following year to assist in the education of the younger sisters, bringing with her much additional proficiency in drawing, French and composition. She took with her also the devoted friendship of two out of her ten fellow pupils Mary Taylor 1817-1893 and Ellen Bussey 1817-1897. With Miss Taylor and Miss Mussy she corresponded for the remainder of her life, and her letters to the latter make up no small part of what has been revealed to us of her life story. Her next three years at Howarth were varied by occasional visits to one or other of these friends. In 1835 she returned to Miss Wohler's school at Rowhead as a governess, her sister Emily accompanying her as a pupil, but remaining only three months, and and then taking her place. The year following the school was removed to Dewsbury. In 1838 Charlotte went back to Howarth and soon afterwards received her first offer of marriage from a clergyman, Henry Mussey, the brother of her friend Ellen. This was followed a little later by a second offer from a curate named Bryce. She refused both and took a situation as nursery governess, first with the Sidgwicks of Stonegap, Yorkshire, and later with the Whites at Rodden in the same county. A few months of this, however, filled her with an ambition to try and secure greater independence as the possessor of a school of her own, and she planned to acquire more proficiency in languages on the continent. As a preliminary step, the aunt advanced some money, and accompanied by her sister Emily she became in February 1842 a pupil at the Pension at Hager, Brussels. Here both girls worked hard, and won the goodwill and indeed admiration of the principal teacher, M. Hager, whose wife was at the head of the establishment. But the two girls were hastily called back to England before the year had expired by the announcement of the critical illness of their aunt. 
Miss Branwell died on the 29th of October 1842. She bequeathed sufficient money to her nieces to enable them to reconsider their plan of life. Instead of a school at Bridlington which had been talked of, they could now remain with their father, utilize their aunt's room as a classroom, and take pupils. But Charlotte was not yet satisfied with what the few months on Belgian soil had done for her, and determined to accept Anne Hager's offer that she should return to Brussels as a governess. Hence the year 1843 was passed by her at the Pension at Hager in that capacity, and in this period she undoubtedly widened her intellectual sphere by reading the many books in French literature that her friend Anne Hager lent her. But life took on a very somber shade in the lonely environment in which she found herself. She became so depressed that on one occasion she took refuge in the confessional precisely as did her heroine Lucy Snow in Villet. In 1844 she returned to her father's house at Howarth, and the three sisters began immediately to discuss the possibilities of converting the vicarage into a school. Prospectuses were issued, but no pupils were forthcoming. Matters were complicated by the fact that the only brother, Patrick Branwell, had about this time become a confirmed drunkard. Branwell had been the idol of his aunt and of his sisters, educated under his father's care. He had early shown artistic leanings, and the slender resources of the family had been strained to provide him with the means of entering at the Royal Academy as a pupil. This was in 1835. Branwell, it would seem, indulged in a glorious month of extravagance in London and then returned home. His art studies were continued for a time at Leeds, but it may be assumed that no commissions came to him and at last he became tutor to the son of a Mr. Postlethwaite at Narrow in Furnace. Ten months later he was a booking clerk at Sowerby Bridge Station on the Leeds and Manchester Railway, and later at Lugdenden Foot. Then he became tutor in the family of a clergyman named Robinson at Thorpe Green, where his sister Anne was governess. Finally he returned to Howarth to a loaf at the village inn, shocked his sisters by his excesses, and to fritter his life away in painful sottishness. He died in September 1848, having achieved nothing reputable, and having disappointed all the hopes that had been centered in him. My poor father naturally thought more of his only son than of his daughters, is one of Charlotte's dreary comments on the tragedy. In early years he had himself written both prose and verse, and a foolish story invented long afterwards attributed to him some share in his sister's novels, particularly in Emily Bronte's Wilfring Heights but Charlotte distinctly tells us that her brother never knew that his sisters had published a line. He was too much under the effects of drink, too besotted and muddled in that last year or two of life, to have any share in their intellectual enthusiasms. The literary life had, however, opened bravely for the three girls during those years. In 1846 a volume of verse appeared from the shop of Aylott and Jones of Paternoster Row, Poems, by Carter, Ellis and Acton Bell, was on the title page. These names disguised the identity of Charlotte, Emily and Anne Bronte. The venture cost the sisters about L50 in all, but only two copies were sold. There were 19 poems by Charlotte, 21 by Emily, and the same number by Anne. A consensus of criticism has accepted the fact that Emily's verse alone revealed true poetic genius. This was unrecognized then except by her sister Charlotte. It is obvious now to all. The failure of the poems did not deter the authors from further effort. They had each a novel to dispose of. Charlotte Bronte's was called The Master, which before it was sent off to London was retitled The Professor. Emily's story was entitled B.04P.0639 Wilfring Heights, and Anne's Agnes Gray. All these stories traveled from publisher to publisher. At last The Professor reached the firm of Smith, 
Elder and Company of Cornhill, the reader for that firm, R. Smith Williams 1800-1875, was impressed, as were also his employers. Charlotte Bronte received in August 1847 a letter informing her that whatever the merits of the professor and it was hinted that it lacked varied interest, it was too short for the three-volume form then counted imperative. The author was further told that a longer novel would be gladly considered. She replied in the same month with this longer novel, and Jane Eyre appeared in October 1847, to be wildly acclaimed on every hand, although enthusiasm was to receive a counterblast when more than a year later. In December 1848, Miss Rigby, afterwards Lady Eastlake 1809-1893, reviewed it in the quarterly. Meanwhile the novels of Emily and Anne had been accepted by T.C. Newby. They were published together in three volumes in December 1847, two months later than Jane Eyre. Although the proof sheets had been passed by the authors before their sister's novel had been sent to the publishers, the dilatoriness of Mr. Newby was followed up by considerable energy when he saw the possibility of the novels by Ellis and Acton Bell sailing on the wave of Curbell's popularity, and he would seem very quickly to have accepted another manuscript by Anne Bronte, for The Tenant of Wildfell Hall was published by Newby in three volumes in June 1848. It was Newby's clever efforts to persuade the public that the books he published were by the author of Jane Eyre that led Charlotte and Anne to visit London this summer and interview Charlotte's publishers in Cornhill with a view to establishing their separate identity. Soon after their return home Branwell died the 24th of September 1848, and less than three months later Emily died also at Howarth the 19th December 1848. Then and became ill and on the 24th of May 1849 Charlotte accompanied her to Scarborough in the hope that the sea air would revive her, and died there on the 28th of May, and was buried in Scarborough churchyard. Thus in exactly eight months Charlotte Bronte lost all the three companions of her youth, and returned to sustain her father, fast becoming blind, in the now desolate home at Howarth, in the interval between the death of Branwell and of Emily, Charlotte had been engaged upon a new novel surely. Two-thirds were written, but the story was then laid aside while its author was nursing her sister Anne. She completed the book after Anne's death, and it was published in October 1849. The following winter she visited London as the guest of her publisher, Mr. George Smith, and was introduced to Thackerari, to whom she had dedicated Jane Eyre. The following year she repeated the visit, sat for her portrait to George Richmond, and was considerably lionized by a host of admirers. In August 1850 she visited the English Lakes as the guest of Sir James K. Shuttleworth, and met Mrs. Gaskell, Miss Martineau, Matthew Arnold and other interesting men and women. During this period her publishers assiduously lent her books, and her criticisms of them contained in many letters to Mr. George Smith and Mr. Smith Williams make very interesting reading. In 1851 she received a third offer of marriage, this time from Mr. James Taylor, who was in the employment of her publishers. A visit to Miss Martineau at Ambleside and also to London to the great exhibition made up the events of this year. On her way home she visited Manchester and spent two days with Mrs. Gaskell. During the year 1852 she worked hard with a new novel, Billet, which was published in January of 1853. In September of that year she received a visit from Mrs. Gaskell at Howarth. In May 1854 she returned it, remaining three days at Manchester and planning with her hostess the details of her marriage, for at this time she had promised to unite herself with her father's curate, Arthur Bell Nichols 1817-1906.
who had long been a pertinacious sweeter for her hand but had been discouraged by Mr. Bronte. The marriage took place in Haworth Church on the 29th of June 1854, the ceremony being performed by the Rev. Sutcliffe Solden, Miss Wooler and Miss Mussy acting as witnesses. The wedded pair spent their honeymoon in Ireland, returning to Haworth, where they made their home with Mr. Bronte. Mr. Nichols having pledged himself to continue in his position as curate to his father-in-law, after less than a year of married life. However, Charlotte Nichols died of an illness incidental to childbirth. On the 31st of March 1855, she was buried in Haworth Church by the side of her mother, Branwell and Emily. The father followed in 1861, and then her husband returned to Ireland, where he remained some years afterwards, dying in 1906. The bare recital of the Bronte story can give no idea of its undying interest, its exceeding pathos. Their life as told by their biographer Mrs. Gaskell is as interesting as any novel. Their achievement, however, will stand on its own merits, and Bronte's two novels, if I.